You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Good morning. Welcome. It's good to have you here today. Um, Sorry to say, uh, I'm glad you are here today in person because those who are online right now are not hearing anything. We're having problems, right, with the sound? We haven't figured it out. You know, what's amazing to me is we've been uh, live streaming for forever, it feels like. Doesn't it feel like COVID is forever? And um, this is the first Sunday I think we've had this issue, uh, which is really amazing. So, so we're in our third week of the series. I'm back to my original uh, Christmas uh, sweater uh, with the um, polar bears in masks and the uh, Christmas trees going up in flames like California fires. I don't know if you recall that, um, but boy, there were a lot. And in Australia had them too this year. 2020 has been an ugly year, you know. And um, we're going to have some fun with ugly. So next Sunday, um, like the band, like me, have an ugly Christmas sweater on. I think that's the ugly Christmas slide. There is a Christmas, that's it, right? The uglier, the better. We're going to have a contest. We'll give a first prize, okay? So Marsha, if you want your sweater back, um, I'll get it to you, okay? You can wear it, okay? That's fine. She gave me the one from last week. Um, what's the prize? Another ugly sweater. No. No, I don't think so. I think it's actually going to be um, a gift card or something, you know. But why don't we have some fun? Because um, 2020 has been a tough year, you know? We have had a lot of ugly going on this year. And today, um, we're going to be discussing as well, again, the ugly period of history that the children of God have gone through and how God is still working it all out. Um, So we are going to be looking at ugly politics today. You think politics are ugly? Yeah, yeah. So um, here's the reality. I don't know if you know this about the Old Testament, but God's people, the children of Israel, hardly ever had a time without ugly politics. Um, They had conflicts, wars, uprising, times that were difficult. You read the book of Judges sometime, and it gets pretty disgusting. But you also find out that even when they asked for a king, even God's own people, not just when they were under Egypt or they were under this or that country, but even when God's own people asked for a king, they were really pushing God out of the way, according to 1 and 2 Samuel. They... Samuel was ticked off that they wanted a king instead of him to rule. And God told Samuel, don't worry, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And that's the way he put it. Um, And um, so even from the time of Abraham, 1900 B.C., to the time of the New Testament, for let's say almost 2,000 years, I would say if you look critically at the history of God's people, There were less than two dozen years of peace, prosperity, and piety altogether. Do you understand that? Just a few years in David's reign, because he had a lot of wars and conflicts, including his own son who tried to overthrow his regime. And then Solomon's reign, there were a few years of peace and prosperity, but then it disintegrated with a lot of polytheistic practices that he brought in with all his wives and concubines, as well as uh, just a moral disintegration. By the time he dies, his son takes over, it splits the kingdom, and from that point on, hardly any kings were good. 
But we're going to look at ugly politics according to the book of Daniel today. The first time that King Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem and swept through and kind of overtook them. And by that point in time, from 605 to 586, when he destroys the city, Nebuchadnezzar destroys the city of Jerusalem, melts down everything in the temple, destroys everything, right? And, and, and they are totally in captivity. But even during those years, they were a puppet state of Babylon. So Daniel and his friends are in Babylon, and they know by the prophet Jeremiah that they're going to be there at least 70 years, and they need to settle down. But God called them not to just give in to everything that's in Babylon. He wanted them to stay distinct, but not like isolated. And so at the time, Daniel and his friends figure this out in a sense. They take on even um, Babylonian names. They learn Babylonian culture. They learn all the um, sciences and the culture of, that they were in. And like Jeremiah the prophet told them, they were going to seek the prosperity and the peace of the place that they were. This is in Jeremiah 29. But at the same time, Daniel and his friends remained distinct and separate in their beliefs. They would not bow down to the Babylonian gods. They did not give in to the Babylonian customs that were in contradiction to their faith. And this book becomes so important. And Daniel is an example of how to live in a culture that is opposed to your values and belief system. That in January, we're going to do a five-part series called Stand on how Daniel and his friends stood firm in the fire. They stood firm. Um, they stood against and they stood and uh, you know, prayed still to the God, etc. I think it's going to be a really good series. It's going to look mostly at the stories in Daniel. But today we're going to look at one of the visions from Daniel. Okay, Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel, it, I would say it's probably a nightmare. He thinks it is. He's pretty disturbed by it. Um, and he isn't sure what to do with it. But before we do that, let's pray, okay? Lord God, we praise and thank you this day that you are working your will in our lives. And despite what we see in our world today and how ugly it has become in some ways in our society today, we know you are working your will. We pray, Lord, right now that you would use this vision from Daniel for your good pleasure, that you would use it in such a way that um, you would do exceeding and abundantly good things, giving us a clearer perspective on how we can view this world and our place in it, how we can be your people in the midst of a culture that is not aligned with your values or your will. We pray right now, Lord, especially in this point in the pandemic, with the vaccine starting to be rolled out, we pray, Lord, that you'd protect and keep us safe that you would use all those frontline workers that you've used so much for so long, that you would keep them safe, that you would slowly but surely bring an end to this pandemic, Lord, that you would bring your healing power to our relationships and our communities again, that you would um, guide and direct us into the future. But even more importantly, Lord, that you would work in us, your people, in the midst of our time and place and our culture so that we show, like Daniel and his friends, how to be distinct, how to be yours, and yet how to serve and to love and to give as they did and make a huge difference in the Babylonian culture of their day 
that we could make that kind of a difference in the lives of people today. So bless our study of your word, Holy Spirit. Be working through it without you. <laughs> all, all it is is just words. But with you, Lord, it is not just truth, but power. The power to change hearts and lives. The power that your word does not return void. And we thank you for that. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So next week, ugly sweaters, right? Do you got one? Make one, All right? So this was actually a pretty nice sweater, and Emma kind of worked on it. She did a pretty good job. Yeah, she found it at Goodwill, and she went for it. Okay. So today we're looking at Daniel chapter 7. It's a fascinating vision, which if you read this, you'll probably go like, I've heard some of this somewhere else. What are we? It's in the book of Revelation. A lot of the book of Revelation comes from Daniel 7. Okay, so let's read it together. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, that is like one of the last slides. Are we having a problem? Okay, right, okay. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of its first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking against great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked. Then because of the sound of that great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to the, be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, you scared now? You're wondering, well, what's going on with this? 
Um, yeah. Well, I think I, what I like about um, studying this text this week is I came across an article by Robert Diefenbaugh, and he writes this, prophecy, prophecy like this is revealed not to give us particulars of things to come, but to change our perspective. And that's what I want to be able to do today, is that we all have a new perspective. I think this chapter of Daniel 7, and I'm not the only one who thinks this, and the chapter of Daniel 2, if you'd ever read that, it's kind of a similar vision, or there are some similarities between the two, is more like a 10 or 20,000 foot perspective over uh, you know, all of history before you. So you're looking way back and seeing everything go through. And what it's doing is showing patterns and it's showing promises to us. Patterns and a promise are given here of how world history is actually working, all the kingdoms of the earth. And um, we need to understand and have a good perspective on the times that we're living in. Because, man, you can get so caught up in whatever's happening recently or the last five years or just this year. And it can get so confusing and you can get all worked up and get so focused on whatever is right before you, not, you don't say, hey, wait a minute, this has happened before. This kind of pattern is going on. We have to understand how to be the people of God in the midst of Babylon, in a sense. And we'll talk about that today. It was even necessary for Daniel. Daniel needed this vision, even though he was disturbed by it. And he needed it because um, this was in the year of Belshazzar, which is Nebuchadnezzar's son when he was reigning. And what's happening is Babylon is declining. It's almost gone. They've been in Babylon for quite a while now. Daniel has known that Babylon has been cruel and difficult and uh, world, the world superpower. But what happens when the superpower falls apart? What comes next? Will it be an even more cruel organization? Will it be even more difficult for the people of God? At least in Babylon, for that period of time, they were somewhat protected and it was semi-predictable about what was going on. And they did flourish during the time of Babylon in their exile, even though they wanted to be back in Jerusalem and Judea. And so Daniel's wondering what's going to happen next, and that's what he finds out. Okay? So Babylon comes and falls, and then comes more kingdoms. So we're going to learn from this passage, though, these three things. The beastly nature of human empires, the glorious humane reign of God, and how to live into God's rule right now in the midst of empire. So first of all, the beastly nature of human empires. So uh, this has four different hybrid beasts. Did you know, they, like the lion with the wings on it, the leopard with four heads? Kind of wild, right? This would be a Salvador Dali painting, I guess. Something wild and crazy is going on, and, um, but it's very symbolic language. And so the question always comes, like, which kingdoms are we talking about here? And most interpreters, when they look at this passage, compare it to Daniel chapter 2 with a statue with four different kind of medals and things going on in the four different kingdoms in that one. And they see a similarity between the two. And the first kingdom is, everybody believes, the lion with the wings, Babylon. But then the question comes up, what's the next king? Most commentators are thinking this day it's the Medes and the Persians. Or the Medes and, um, yeah, the Medes and the Persians. And then finally, the fourth kingdom would be 
this wonderful um, kingdom called the Greeks, right, Alexander the Great, that then gets split into four parts, and one little horn, that little horn that speaks up in blasphemous things, is, they said, Antiochus Epiphany the fourth, the Seleucid Greek king, that is the one who comes into Jerusalem, by the way, and desecrates the temple, and Judas Maccabeus and the others rise up against him and get rid of him because he had slaughtered a pig on the altar in Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and they finally routed him after a couple of years, and the temple is rededicated a la the festival of Hanukkah, which started Friday evening this year, December 11th. Did you know that? And uh, somebody raised the question, why is Hanukkah eight days? Because for eight days, the menorah, the candles in the temples, the oil lasted for eight days miraculously when the temple was rededicated. So many people think that. Others, though, think that the fourth kingdom is Rome and that the third kingdom with the four heads are the four different generals under Alexander the Great. And, um, you know, if this was a Bible study, we'd debate all of that stuff, look at all the particulars. But I think this is where we're going today. Uh, Christopher Wright, in his um, very good book called Hearing the Message of Daniel, writes this. It is right to see here not so much a single, unique historical point of reference, but a recurring pattern. Human empires rise and fall, overlap with each other, go to war with each other, and so on. And at different times in history, especially vicious regimes arise that seem to concentrate evil to its most potent virulence. The fourth beast represents such ultimate manifestations of evil, anti-God, anti-human forces that exude arrogance, breathe out violence, and wreak devastation and destruction on an enormous scale, causing intense suffering for the people of God at such times. So what's fascinating is Every kingdom that's listed in this dream are beastly, are animalistic, are cruel, are predatory. They're quick, powerful. They come out of this chaos, out of the ocean. It's not the only place in Scripture that talks about the nations of the world and the way that they are organized against God. In fact, um, Psalm chapter 2 Psalm 2 says it this way, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And the reality I have to face is this, that there is no exception that a nation does not do this. From Genesis and the Tower of Babel, the first time human beings tried to organize themselves, they were basically giving God a defiant, I, we're going to rise up and be God ourselves, to the nation of Israel itself, as I mentioned, and the kings were placed on the throne to basically put God on the side often. Few kings, only a few years, were things even good. And Solomon and David, even the best of kings, you see critiques of them. Prophets always come. There is never a human leader until the one that we're going to talk about in a few minutes that does it right. So even in Israel, most kings were cruel. Most times were tough. 
story of the Bible. I don't know if you realize this. Um, I, I learned this rule of thumb that happens in the book of Kings. So there's two first Kings and second Kings. When, there's two different Hebrew words that are used for a king. One should be translated prince, but often it's just translated king. And the other is melech, king, right? When a leader is called a prince, it's often they understand they're second in charge. They're not the ultimate. Then they're good. When they call king, when they're the ultimate, when they're the, la the, the top dog, they're considered evil. So that distinction is made that God is supposed to be the king of Israel, no matter who the leader is. And when the leader understands that, things work well. When the leaders don't understand that and they make themselves ultimate, things aren't good. See, the reality is God did create human beings to be his representatives on earth, to be co-regents with him under his authority as his representatives. It comes up already in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where God says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing. So we are supposed to have dominion over the beast, but when Adam and Eve and all of us kind of defied God, what has turned into... Instead of us having dominion over the beasts, we have turned into the beasts ourselves. Though we are supposed to be the crown of creation, we have cast off God's rule and defined it ourselves. And you already see in Genesis 4, where two people together, the smallest organization you can possibly have, and it's two brothers, we see the beastly nature come out when Cain kills Abel. Already, you can see the direction things are going to go in this world. And since then, the beast has been reigning in this world in one form or another. And you can look at any history of any nation, any nation, and tell me you can find one that is always noble and upright and fair and just. <laughs> right? Everyone's a beast. Everyone at moments has been inhumane to their own citizens, let alone others. And the Bible critiques every human organization the same, and it's pretty sharp in its critique. You know, so that's what Daniel is saying, no matter what kingdom rises up, no matter what's going on, it's not always that great. You know, with the recent elections we've had in the United States, you can see all the power plays that have been going on for decades, actually. And uh, sometimes, uh, you know, I've been kind of shocked at how somehow we think that my side of the argument is not, you know, is exempt from this critique of the Bible, but their side is not. Do you understand that? That's a very dangerous place to be in. I have to understand that I have a beastly nature myself, and if I get in charge and rule the world, or have everybody, it can just turn just as cruel as anyone else. We've got this beastly nature. There's only one person who has ever ruled and ever can rule properly, and we'll get to that. So we need to understand that we all have to be under the humane, gracious rule of God. That's the only way it's going to work out. And I'm bringing this up because... Um, Partly because, well, I've had an easy life. It's been pretty easy. And the town I grew up in, it's a wonderful little town. 
you know, and it was a pleasant life. But we kind of assumed that everything was always copacetic with whatever the government wanted to do, and everything was good as long as businesses said it was okay. And to be a good Christian was to be a good citizen and a good consumer. Do you understand? Everything was always aligned and everything was good because we were basically living in the new Jerusalem. Okay? When in reality, the Bible would say we've always been living in Babylon. I don't think Daniel's vision is simply about past history. I think it's about present realities as well, and we have to all recognize that. This is why uh, in a recent Christianity Today article, uh, Bonnie Christian wrote this. She said, we're not headed to Babylon. We're already there. For American Christians, the United States is not our true home. Scripture insists that to be a Christian, by definition, is to be foreign to any earthly nation. America is no exception. I know that's kind of hard to take sometimes. I am very proud of what we've been as a country in many ways. And yet at the same time, I have to recognize there are times that the nation goes one way and me following Jesus is going to go another. That's the perspective that we need to have. I don't really expect my government, wherever I'm living, to subsidize my values nor endorse my belief system. Nor do I need Christianity to be popular to be following Jesus. We follow Jesus no matter what, wherever we live, like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We follow Jesus, we follow God's will, no matter where we are, no matter what condition we are in. So the reality is, politics, it's ugly. The beasts come forth, but ultimately, this vision says they don't win. Nations rise and fall. The kingdom of God is the only one that rules forever. And that's going to be our second point. The glorious, humane reign of God. Christopher Wright puts it this way in his book, The fate of the world will be decided not by the boastful claims and power of the beast, but by the will and purpose of God and its ultimate judgment on all that takes place in this world. So that's the fascinating picture about this vision, is that God just basically says, then one comes like a son of man out of the clouds, and he is given dominion, and his kingdom and his reign will be forever, and all nations will bow down and worship him. The son of man comes into God's divine presence and sits on the throne next to him, and the throne, that one that was supposed to be given to Adam and Eve, and they, as co-regents, were supposed to, we were supposed to be with God overseeing creation, being the crown of his creation, and we walked away from that throne, but now God has placed a human being, not a beast, a human on that throne again. And the intended partnership that God has always had for us will one day be realized again. And the question is, how does this take place? Who is this person, right? You know, in the New Testament, I don't know if you realize this. Jesus has his own pet phrase for himself, his own name, 80 times. He doesn't say, I'm the Messiah, very often, once or twice. You know, the title Christ was not one he used of himself. That's Messiah. 
He's called a rabbi by others. Some think of him as a prophet, but the title that he designates himself as again and again, 80 times recorded in the four Gospels is Son of Man. Look it up sometime. And Jesus basically is saying, I'm the Son of Man from Daniel 7. I'm the Son of Man who understands his place as a full human being, the fully, truly human one, the first time this world has seen one without a beastly nature, without a rebellious spirit, without a defiant fist toward God. This is the one who is born and is fully human and fully loves and gives, who doesn't take or grab onto glory for himself, but continues to glorify his Father, who understands his place, who does what he is told. And when Jesus finally is brought on trial, do you understand what brought him to the crucifixion? He was asked by Caiaphas, the high priest, the religious elite of his day, and he said, are you the son of God? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus said this in Matthew 26, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Ugly politics killed him. It's the son of man. That title moved the high priest to reject him and to treat him, and they turned on him like wild beasts. Do you understand? The beastly nature that came out, they yell for his death. They take him before Pilate, and did you realize that it is the superpower of Jesus' day and the government that turns in him and nails him to the cross for being the king of the Jews, that he would be a ruler, this one. And it is from that cross, from that throne, that God has exalted him to the highest place. He sacrifices his life as the son of man for this world, as the new Adam, as the real human, as the one to show what it means to love and to live and to serve and to give. And he pours out his life for you and for me. God's reign is so different. It's not coercive. It is not forceful. It is not like any other organization or institution that human beings have come up with. God's reign and rule is through sacrificial love through his son, Jesus Christ. This is what N.T. Wright says. Jesus himself is the one like the Son of Man who, having suffered at the hands of the beast, and particularly the last great beast, Rome itself, Jesus is now exalted. Ugly politics is put to death at the cross. And a new reign in the hearts and lives of human beings begins. Though we're still stuck in the world of Babylon, where human beings try to force others to do all sorts of things, Jesus Christ comes to you and to me and his love and grace enters into our hearts, into our lives, and serves us without limit, and we just receive his goodness and grace and gospel word. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't act like any other king because he's the true king, the true king. So, how do we now live into that reign of God? That's our third point today. How do we live into 
the way that Jesus has set things up compared to the way human organizations are run. You know, and I'll tell you this, I don't know if you've realized this, you can look at world history as well as a perspective. Christianity has actually flourished when it is not in power. Often when it is not in power. In fact, the power of the, the church is the power to serve and to give just like Jesus did. And it's amazing how that transforms cultures when we live that way. It transformed the entire, the worst empire in the world, the Roman Empire, within a couple hundred years was transformed by the gospel. And they were amazed at how Christians loved one another. Somehow, I think we've lost the understanding that it is the love of God, the truth of God in Jesus Christ that will transform this world. Nothing else. You know, I think uh, Christians are tempted to do one of two things. One is to become beastly ourselves because we see how, how forceful people are around us, you know, and the other is to retreat and uh, to kind of protect ourselves and walk away and just kind of cloister ourselves away from this terrible world. Daniel and his friends were called to be in Babylon and an influence to Babylon without being overcome by Babylon's culture. It's a hard place to be, but that's where you and I are called. Jesus says to us, he is sending us out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He doesn't send you out as a wolf in the midst of wolves, just like he was the sheep in the midst of wolves. So I think here are three implications um, very quickly to what it means to live into this reign of God that is so different than the, uh, the, uh, the reigns of this world. First, or A, like Jesus, we do call the powers of this world for what they are, okay? You know, when governments and corporations or any human organization takes on the ultimate place, you know, tries to be the ultimate instead of the penultimate, second at least, that's when we have to call it out for what it is. And the Christian tradition has been where we have called out any regime that has done that. Think of the Nazis. And that regime was called out by the Christian church again and again. You are taking the place of God. You have no right to be there. Or Stalinist Russia. Or many other authoritarian regimes to say, you are not in God's place. You cannot be that way. Anytime any organization takes over the ultimate, it becomes beastly. And Christians call it out. Secondly, <clears throat> we serve Jesus style. We don't become beastly ourselves. Oh, the temptation is there. I get it. But no, we live in the new humanity, so we are to be marked by the character of Jesus Christ, which is summarized in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility. You try to find somebody who's going to argue with you when you're loving to them, right? When you are rejoicing over good in their lives, when you are patient with them. That's how we live in this world. And thirdly, our ultimate hope. We don't place our hope in politics or any human organization. No. You know, kingdoms rise and fall. It's Jesus Christ and his reign that lasts forever. And so that's why Psalm 2 
says it this way, he who sits on the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So in other words, God is going to set up his kingdom no matter what. All the powers of the earth cannot change that. And we see this is why Jesus came. His is an upside-down kingdom. His reign is so different from any other in this world. He is, I am willing to live and follow him no matter where he is leading us and no matter how because uh, there's nobody else like him, nobody even close. N.T. Wright put it this way, everything is going to be different as a result of this. The beasts are going to be overthrown and the kingdom of God is being launched. That's what happened when Jesus reigned in this world from his cross and through the resurrection is now bringing it about in your life and mine. So, welcome to Babylon. Okay? Jesus came to this earth for the ugly politics that is going on here so that he could bring about the real peace, the real hope of this world through uniting us together in his family, the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word today, a tough word. Give us the perspective that Daniel received from this vision, that kingdoms may rise and fall and they may threaten and they may, um, they may uh, try to defy you in so many ways, Lord God, but you've called us to the everlasting kingdom of your son, Jesus Christ, who sits at your right hand, who reigns through his love and mercy and forgiveness. We pray, Lord, that we would share that good news with others, Lord, that we would be able to serve others as you have served us. Lord, we think of many people right now in both our congregation and our community that need you. Lord, sh shortly we are going to be trying to serve this community again with food and the needs that they have just for the day-to-day -day needs, Lord, because of the pandemic and the economy and everything going on, Lord God. We pray that you bless our efforts through Interfaith uh, Food Bank, that you would work in that according to your will, and that not only would they be fed, Lord, with uh, physical food, but with your spiritual food of your good news, the truth that we find in you, Lord Jesus. We lift up to you our, our, our members, Lord, um, Andy and Jeff Blankenship. They're both now hospitalized. We pray for Jeff's heart, Lord, and you know um, his heart condition over the years and now uh, with angina, etc., Lord, that you would just um, relieve him of all the anxieties over his wife and concerns for her. We pray for um, Andy as she also is facing the difficulty of infections as a result of her chemo treatments now and her immune system being um, lessened, and we pray, Lord, your healing on both. Bless them, Lord. For, um, and we just pray, Lord God, that you would show mercy upon us as you show mercy upon them. Lord God, we pray for those who are facing uh, the difficulty of unemployment now, Lord, and the stress that this pandemic has brought into their lives, Lord. We pray that you would help us to bear with one another and be there for one another. We ask, O oh Lord, that um, just over the next few weeks, 
and over the next few months, you give us patience and our community and world patience that you would raise leaders in our nation, Lord, that would lead wisely us through the end of this pandemic, through the vaccination process and to a time post-COVID. We pray, Lord God, that you would be working your will there. Lord God, um, you know how we need your perspective in all matters. And we look to you for all good things. And um, so we place all those burdens that are on our hearts and lives right now into your care. We pray that you give us the right understanding, but more the trust, to trust you with all of our anxiety, casting all our anxieties on you, Lord, because you care for us. That's what the scriptures say, Lord God, that we can, and so we do. Our lives are yours. All this we lift up to you, Lord Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.